Uh, we're back in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 4 this week. Uh, we have gone through the first three. We really did uh, pick this as what we would do moving into this building because we really felt in some ways like we're relaunching the church. Uh, this starts a really significant season uh, for us, not just because we've got a, a more parking spots, not just because of the nursery, not just because like, you actually have room for your elbows uh, sitting out there. Um, we really thought this was significant because it really kind of gives us a home. It kind of puts us in a neighborhood. It kind of gives us neighbors. Uh, whereas before, it was kind of like renting an apartment. It's like, hey, we're in, we're out, we're in, we're out, we're in, we're out. Not no real sense of ownership because, I mean, not that this building's ours either, but um, this is just different. There's just something very different about uh, being in this space. So we want to see, okay, if we're kind of relaunching, what does uh, the church look like? And uh, in the book of Acts, we really do see that just because Jesus went back up into heaven uh, doesn't mean that his kingdom has now vanished. In fact, the, the kingdom is now uh, spreading through the power of the Holy Spirit in his people. And that's what we've seen happen. We saw it happen last week as uh, a crippled person is healed. We saw it happen last week as even more were added to their number because they repented and turned to God. And uh, I think uh, this week we'll see more of what's the dynamics of living this kingdom life. Uh, what does it look like? Uh, and we'll really see that it's kind of, there's this opposition that goes about it. Um, I think about this text, I really thought about uh, where we live. We live a few blocks that way, and uh, we moved, uh, we moved there, we moved into our house uh, about two weeks after the church started. And uh, we really loved the other places that we lived in town, uh, but the other places we lived in town, most people had driveways uh, that they would pull into and they would get home, and they had garages where the garage would go up. Uh, and then they would park in their garage, and they'd close their garage door, and then they would walk into their house. And so you really didn't get to know your neighbors. I mean, you really had to get after it. You really had to kind of be kind of pushy to get to know your neighbors, like their names even. Uh, and so you'd have to take them cookies, you'd have to invite them over, uh, you'd have to interrupt them while they were cutting their grass, uh, just to know their name, just to know what they were about. And we really did get to know our neighbors in our first two neighborhoods. It was, it was really great. Uh, then we moved downtown. Nobody has a garage on our street. Uh, nobody even has a driveway on our street because we all park on the street. Uh, and then people uh, treat their front porches uh, like, uh, like you do your living room. Uh, they're out there all the time. So people are always talking. Uh, everybody knows each other. If you need an egg, just call the neighbor because they got chickens. Uh, if you're out of uh, time, just you know, ask the neighbor. They've got extra. If you've got leftovers uh, or if you've got sweets that you don't want to eat that you want to throw on somebody else, just go to the neighbors. They'll take it. Uh, there's a real sense of community on the street. I mean, we celebrate the holidays together. You're thinking, gosh, Marsh, that really sounds like Utopia. What street do you live on? I'd like to come. Uh, except I'd like a garage. Um, uh, well, I, I, it's not been easy either. It's been really, really difficult. Um, because uh, on our street anyways, uh, when I say, you know, hey, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a pastor. Uh, it's like you might as well just take a needle and put it in a balloon. They're like, oh, I guess I'll go cook some chicken. I'm done. With this conversation. Uh, no one on my street, uh, I, actually I take that back, there's one family on my street that goes to church, uh, but the other 30 something homes, and I kind of know all of them, and none of them go to church. None of them hate me. None of them are writing mean letters and putting them in my mailbox. None of them are trying to send me to jail. But there's these microaggressions, these things that we get left out of. Uh, there's this 
hey, don't, but they, they don't ask any questions about this whole part of my life, which is a pretty big part of my life. And I think that's what it looks like, persecution in our, ter- in our context. What it looks like to be opposed. We're, I mean, we're going to see a pretty severe place here. But the kingdom of God, the dynamics haven't changed. The gospel is still offensive. And we still do face opposition to the kingdom of God. Uh, so let's read Acts 4, and then we'll dive in. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now remember, last week we had Peter and John. Remember Peter and John, they healed the guy. Peter and John uh, preached the sermon. Uh, and you think that everything would be uh, sweetness and light. It's not sweetness and light. Uh, there's opposition because all those people we just read about are now coming upon them. All right? Verse 2. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas. All right, pause there. Uh, Annas and Caiaphas, you know who they are? They're the people that are involved in Jesus' trial. The same people uh, who were part of Jesus' uh, death are now uh, Peter and John are standing before them. Is history going to repeat itself? That's the question we're asking. And John and, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known. To all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now then, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all that happens in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, oh, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The word of the Lord. So real obvious, we're talking about persecution today. Uh, and when we uh, see all this about persecution uh, in the New Testament, we think, golly, I'm so glad I live in America in the 21st century. 
But Jesus was the one who promised this persecution. John 15, here's what he says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Oh. Jesus said that this was going to happen. When Jesus said this in John 15, you know, Peter and John, when this is going on before them, they're thinking, yeah, Jesus said this dynamic would play itself out. They hated Jesus, they ended up killing him. They might end up killing us too. And so what we see in our passage is the source of opposition, the response to opposition, and then finally the bliss of opposition, the source of opposition. Let's look at that first. You, you, you see that who the group is. They're a bunch of high-ranking people. Uh, they're a group of people that you take them all together and you call them the Sadducees. Or you can call them part of the Roman government. The Sadducees are an interesting lot. The, the, the Sadducees in the, in the New Testament are this ruling class. They're wealthy. Uh, they're Jewish aristocrats. And these Sadducees are aligned with the Romans. The Romans are ruling over the nation. And, and not ruling over them in and in making them all subjects in such a way that it's oppressive. But it, it, like really bad, impressive, like slavery. That's, that wasn't it. The, the, the Romans were pretty much like, hey, as long as you guys give us your tax money, we can be peaceable here. You guys can kind of do what you want as long as you give us your money. And so the Sadducees, they've gotten real cozy with the Romans. They've got this alliance going on. They've also got unique beliefs. Unlike a lot of other Jews of the time, uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So you've got this relationship that they have with the Romans. You've got this belief uh, in this really de denial of the resurrection. This is where they're at. Then you've got these two ruffians, these, these two hobos, Peter and John. These just regular old roughneck guys coming before them, and they're proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, this wasn't something private. This was something they just journaled about and wrote about and thought about. That, no, no, no. This is something that was very public. They were telling the whole world that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so now, because it's so public, the Sadducees are hostile towards these Christians. They, not, they don't just disagree with them. They dislike them. But they're also threatened by them. Because they're thinking, golly, it, it, this... This rising group, this, this people is growing rapidly. These Christians, they could destabilize this cozy relationship that we have with the Romans. This economic alliance, this political alliance, this social alliance, this religious alliance that we have with them could all fall apart if these Christians upend it. Because remember, all these people who are coming to faith through Acts 4 are all Jewish. So because they disagree with them, they dislike them, they feel threatened by them, they develop a strategy. I think it's really important to notice. What do they try to do? What do they try to do to, 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 uh, uh, to get Peter and John out of their way? Notice what they did. They didn't try to prove that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. I mean, that's what I would have tried to have done. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. But it was impossible to refute. They could have, they would eagerly, eagerly sought that opportunity. But the proof of Jesus' bodily resurrection was indisputable. Hundreds of people had witnessed this. So they couldn't say anything otherwise. 
The best that they could do with Peter and John was to forbid them from preaching. They couldn't bring any charges against them just because they disagreed with them. They couldn't bring charges against them just because they felt insecure. But what they could do is order them not to preach. Because if they did so, then they could be held in contempt of court. And you might say, gosh, Mark, that was like 2,000 years ago. What's that got to do with me? Well, everything. We're persecuted as Christians for all the same reasons. Because the message of Christianity poses a real threat to some. It's something that they disagree with. It's something that they oppose. So who is that person for you? Who's the source of your opposition? And what is it about Christianity that they're rejecting? Now you don't know any Sadducees. I don't either. But it doesn't mean that we're not opposed. Or opposed. When I say opposition, I'm not talking about somebody you don't like. I'm not talking about Satan. I'm not talking about your indwelling sin. I'm talking about people who are actively disagree with the fact that you're a Christian. When they actively do this, I know what they're not doing. But what they do do is they talk behind your back. What they do do is discredit you because of Jesus. What they do do is they withhold relationship from you because of their skepticism. This is the kind of opposition that we face as 21st century Americans or Christians. But it's also worth asking this question. As you find the source of your opposition, to ask the question, why are they opposing me? Why are they not me as much as Jesus? Is it because they've been hurt by the church? Is it because they've endured a ton of suffering and now you're proclaiming a God who loves them and they think that you shouldn't believe in a God who loves them because they think it's foolish? Are you being opposed because of an ethic that you believe in as a Christian that's totally incompatible with the life that they live? Are you being opposed because of someone whose worldview is all intellectualism and they think that faith is just untenable? It's just a fairy tale. Who's your opposition? And why do they oppose you? What did Peter and Paul do? Now that they've been opposed, do they run away? Uh, do they fight back? I think what we see is in their response is something real simple. They don't run and they don't fight back, but they do resist. And they do so boldly as they proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus. So you see a resistance, uh, you see the proclamation of, of Jesus, and you see their boldness. Now look at the exclusivity of Jesus. Look at verses 8 to 12. You see Peter's proclamation. It, it, you read 8 to 12, and if you were to read that again, you say, oh gosh, haven't I read that before? Yeah. You read pretty much the same thing in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. He's just preaching the same sermon over and over and over again. Sound familiar? <laughs> That's what he's doing here. It's just a lot more compact. Mine's not going to be as compact. And he goes on to say that this Jesus, the one who healed the crippled man, is now the same Jesus who brings salvation. So he moves from this particular healing of a crippled man to a much more broader, a much more broad general condition of the sickness of the world. What he does is he sees this one man's physical cure as a picture of salvation which is offered to all in Christ. You see his two negatives? In verse 12, he says, no one else and no other name. 
He's telling us that it's the uniqueness of the name of Christ that is the cure to this crippled man and to the sickness of the world. It's Jesus' death, it's his resurrection, it's his exaltation, it's his authority that constitute for him his position as the only Savior and the only Lord of all. No one else has these qualifications. See, no one else has died for sin. No one else has risen from the dead. No one, or as a victory, as victory over evil anyways. No one else has been exalted to heaven at God's right hand. It's just Jesus who possesses these qualifications. In other words, Jesus is the key figure in God's plan for the restoration of the world. So what you do with Jesus becomes the inescapable decision point for your life. Let me say it again. What you do with Jesus becomes the inescapable decision point for your life. Remember who Peter's talking to? He's talking to card-carrying Jews. And you know what Jews believe? Jews believe in one God. And this God created the heavens and the earth. This God has a plan of redemption for his people, the Jews. He's going to renew all things. They know that what they believe in is an exclusive God. But it's going to take more for them and for you than just a, a generic belief in God to have salvation. You're also going to have to narrow it down to the person of Jesus Christ. And that's a jump that many Jews and many of us are unwilling to make. It's tough for our modern ears. We live in this relativistic society. We live in a place where you know people of probably every world religion. We live in Lexington, a university town. You know people, not just that have other faith, but you know lots of people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And to propose, and to propose an exclusive claim is very, very difficult. There have been alternatives. Some people have said, you know, this Jesus somehow benefits adherents of these other religions, even if they don't acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. But friends, this approach just flies in the face of everything we've read in Acts chapter 2. Because what's necessary is to fall upon the name of Jesus with repentance and faith to benefit from the salvation that he alone offers. This is what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 11. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, to receive salvation is to be in a relationship with Jesus. <coughs> then Jesus says pretty much the same thing in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, the only way to escape judgment is to believe in Jesus. The exclusivity of the claim of Christ. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is what, what Peter is proclaiming in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's no name under heaven except Jesus by which all men must be saved. 
That's how they respond to this opposition. Is they just crank up the proclamation even harder. And they do so with boldness. If you've been reading through the book of Acts, like we've done this 50 days of prayer, tomorrow's day 50. Or maybe Tuesday. Maybe. Uh, you, you will see this word courage or the word boldness, depending on your translation. You will see it 13 times in the book of Acts. We see it here in our, in, in our text. It's not enough just to say that they proclaimed the exclusivity of Christ. It's that they did so with great boldness. There's a confidence. There's an unashamedness that enables them to speak so freely to this hostile audience. So this proclamation is center on the exclusivity of Christ. They do it with boldness, but they also do it with some resistance. See, Peter and John, uh, they're ordered to give up preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. They can't do that. Back in Acts, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, we see that Jesus' uh, departing words to them were, Go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They have to follow through on the commissioning that's been given to them by Jesus Christ himself. So they can do a lot of things. They can, they, they can be flexible in a lot of ways with the Sadducees and with the Roman rulers. But this is the one thing they can't give up. They can't make them stop preaching. And they're going to pay a price. And faithful gospel ministry demands your courage and it demands a willingness to suffer the consequences. This is how they respond. Reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago. Uh, there was a, a pastor in England in the 1500s. It was during the English Reformation. His name's Hugh Latimer. Uh, Hugh Latimer uh, was one of the leaders of uh, the English Reformation, along with another guy named Thomas Cramer. And uh, he ended up dying for his faith. Uh, but during the English Reformation, I don't know if you remember what was happening, but you had Henry VIII, and then there was Edward, and then there was Mary. And they were going back and forth between the Protestant Catholic, Protestant Catholic. When they were Catholic, the Catholics were, were wiping out uh, the Protestants. I'm not saying it's like that now, but that's what was going on in England. And when this was going on in the 1500s, uh, when Henry VIII was pro-Protestant, he wasn't always pro-Protestant, but when he was pro-Protestant, uh, uh, Henry VIII advised him to come preach a sermon. Just to him. He allowed her and says, great, I'll come preach to the king. So he preaches to the king. He upsets the king. He knows he upsets the king. He leaves, and one of the, uh, king's, one of the king's people comes to Hugh Latimer and says, hey, uh, the king would love to hear you again, but you can't. You can't do that again. Uh, if you do, things could go really bad. He said, okay, word noted. Uh, King invites him to come back. Hugh Latimer opens up his Bible, reads the exact same text, and preaches the exact same sermon. And he's burned at the stake. You see the resistance? You see the boldness? You see the exclusivity of Christ in that story? I know it sounds daunting. For old Hugh, you got Peter, you got John, you got Jesus. It's fine for these kind of people to suffer for what they believe, to be so bold. But look at us. We're people who struggle to do the 50 days of prayer. Look at us. We're people who have to fight for joy in the mundane of life. We're people who have even a hard time talking about Jesus to people who are friendly with us. And now we're supposed to boldly proclaim something offensive to hostile people? 
How is that possible? How's it possible that people who are opposed to you so much and then stand before them with such boldness? Well, it's because there's a bliss of persecution. You get little signs as you work through the text. You see it in verse 8. You see it again in verse 13. You see it again in verse 22. In verse 8, the first way we, we see this bliss of persecution when it happens is when it says that Peter's being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, as you read through Acts, it's almost like a common refrain. It's like, gosh, there's that phrase again, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll just read right past that. But don't do so. Because it tells us, it identifies for us the well from which Peter gets his boldness. It's not his piety. It's not his position. The well that he was drawing from was the power that was given him in chapter 2. But somewhere between chapter 2 and chapter 4, he needs to get filled again. And he does, right here. And we're the same. Because to proclaim Jesus with boldness, it's going to require us to have this continuing, this continuous return to the pump. Peter's done it here. We should too. I've got a 16-gallon tank in my old 2003 Toyota. Uh, I don't drive a ton, so I can go two, three, four weeks without filling up. It's really glorious. I spend very little time at the gas station. We want really big tanks in our cars so we don't have to go to the gas station very much, but it's a really bad way to think if you're thinking about your spiritual life. What you want spiritually are really, really small tanks so that you have to go back over and over again for the filling. Because the only ones who are perpetually full are the ones who are willing to say that they're perpetually empty. We need to start praying that God helps us grow down into having a tenth of a gallon gas tank spiritually. That as soon as we go anywhere, as soon as anything happens in our life, we've already leaked out all the gas. We've already used out all the gas we got when we need more. It's the bliss of opposition is that when you're this needy for the Holy Spirit. And you know when you're being opposed. You also know, the other way we see, listen to verse 13. Look at verse 13. This is one of my favorite verses in all scripture. It says that Peter and John were untrained in common. When it says they're untrained, it means that they had no education. Uh, I have a friend uh, who's a pastor, uh, and he's never been to college. And he has, uh, in, his, in his office, where he has mostly people with master's degrees come in, uh, he has hanging on his wall his high school diploma. And what he's wanting to tell all these people with a whole lot more degrees and a whole lot more education than him is that he's unschooled, that he's untrained. This isn't what I'm relying on. I'm not saying that education is bad. I'm just saying you don't need it to have power. <laughs> and it says they're common. It's common people. Well, it means they're lay people. It means that these aren't people who are getting their paycheck from the church. Now, eventually they do, but at this point in the game, they are not. And they take note of these two things. And look at the last thing that they take note of. They take note that these two men had been with Jesus. Untrained, common, been with Jesus. See, it's clear to the Sadducees. Sadducees, they were, they were used to messing with Jesus. They were used to being in arguments with Jesus and losing 
here that they take note that they've been with Jesus, even though they're unconvinced by their claims. Because here you have just these two hobos who are operating way beyond their natural ability. But see, friends, this is what happens. We begin to act, to operate way beyond our natural ability, too, when we're with Jesus. Because what happens is his life begins to infuse yours so that you begin to take on his boldness. You begin to take on his resoluteness. So it becomes a blissful thing to decrease more and more so that the life of Jesus may increase in you. Untrained, common men who've been with Jesus. What a blissful thing to be with Jesus. What a blissful thing to be full of the Holy Spirit. And then do you see the other blissful thing, verse 22? The other blissful thing that they have is that they get to be with this guy who's been healed. Remember then in chapter 3 it says that the guy who's been healed wouldn't leave him alone. He just stayed with him. And it mentions him a couple times here throughout chapter 4. So this whole time as they're being opposed, you know that that healed, that the crippled man who's been healed is standing there and he's their biggest fan. He's cheering them on. And he's validating the Jesus that they are proclaiming. Now, I didn't get this, this blissful opposition. I, I didn't make this up. But those really are three blissful things that happen in this text. But if you remember the words of Jesus, go back to Matthew chapter 5. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. No way you can translate that word blessed is happy. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's waving a carrot out in front of our face. You are hardwired. I am hardwired for incentive. He's made us to be motivated by something so much more than just doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. He wants us to be bold in the face of persecution so that you can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Friends, you and I, we're going to face persecution. And it's really hard. But God's going to give you reminders along the way. He's going to remind you that the kingdom of heaven is coming down for you. He's going to give you these, these tangible showings, just like a crippled man, that God is working in your midst. He's going to fill you with this Holy Spirit as you move forward. He's going to promise to be with you. They have been with Jesus. And it's worth it. But here's the real blessed persecution. The real bliss of persecution is that it puts you on your back. And when you're on your back, you can look up to heaven. And you can see the smile of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do, we, we do confess our cowardice. And, but Lord, I, I'd say even more deeply for me, I, I, uh, I want to repent of Lean on my own gifting. Lord, that I, I don't think I've got a really small tank. I'm looking to be filled with a lot of other things in the Holy Spirit for power in this life. 
Lord, I, I, I confess that I've not spent the kind of time with you where it's obvious I've been with you. Oh, Lord Jesus, may your life begin to infuse ours so that we might stand in the face of opposition and proclaim you boldly. We pray you do this for the sake of your name.